Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways in which money can do so much more than just make more money. I'd like to introduce you to our CEO and co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Armit Buri. Armit, who are you talking to today and what are you hoping to find out from your guest? For this episode of the Next Normal Podcast, I'm excited to welcome my good friend Salome Lemma. Salome is a philanthropist, activist, and organizer. She is currently the executive director of Thousand Currents, a resource mobilizer that supports, invests in, and works alongside people, organizations, and movements throughout the global south. In her role, Salome helps to champion grassroots leaders and solutions focused on food sovereignty, economic justice, and climate justice. Salome joined Thousand Currents through a merger with a global network, Africans in the Diaspora, which she co-founded. Salome has also served as a White House champion of change under the Obama administration. And in addition to her work at Thousand Currents, she also serves on the board of the Pantarea Foundation. Salome, welcome to the Next Normal podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be in this dialogue with you. Oh, I'm so grateful to be in this dialogue with you. And I'm so happy that you're here. And I'm really eager to jump into your work. But before I do so, I want to talk about your own personal story and, and what you bring to the work that you do. You were born in Ethiopia and then moved to the United States when you were young. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how that experience shaped you and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. I came to the United States when I was 11. And the first state that I landed in was Georgia, where I'm actually based now. And we lived in Marietta, Georgia at that time. When I came to the United States, I had obviously very little knowledge of what to expect, didn't know English, but came super excited about what was to come and also proud, proud of the place that I come from, proud of being from East Africa, being African and so forth. And when I came here, and this was in 1991, I saw the types of misperceptions and misconceptions people had of Ethiopia and Africa in general. The kinds of questions I had to answer were ludicrous and funny, but also really sad around if I had enough food, if I had a house, how I got here. And I think that really shaped and informed the rest of my trajectory in terms of my own academic pursuits or career, because I learned early on that while I had this image of home as a place of love, as a place of community, as a place that provided me joy, grounding, support that made me believe I could be anything that I want, the image that Americans held of it were completely and fundamentally different. And that was in large part due to the 1985 famine but also due to the international development and philanthropic response to it that told stories of Ethiopia as a place of need, as a problem, as a place that needed to be saved. And so I think that was, I would say, probably a pivotal moment in shaping my understanding of the world and how I engage with it. Thank you for sharing that. And I think one of the things that I'd, I'd like to come back to as we talk about how we you know, think about changing our economic system and changing power dynamics is a theme I'm drawing from what you just shared around rewriting narratives and how you had a narrative of your own journey and your own experience in Ethiopia and how people were trying to rewrite that or at least mm -hmm. had a different narrative that you, were, um, you had to confront. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about your work is the way you try to help local communities write their own narrative and shape their own future. We'll come back to that point, but I do want to dive into the problem that you see in our current economic system and, you know, and what shapes the strategy at Thousand Currents. 
We talked about some of the themes that you work on, food sovereignty, economic justice, and climate justice. I see our economic system and capitalism intersecting with all of those things and would love to get your take on how the current system is failing the people that you serve. Yeah, that's a great question. For those who may not know, Thousand Currents supports grassroots groups and movements working for food, climate, and economic justice around the world and particularly in the global south. And I think that's important to note that these are groups that are based in parts of Africa, Asia, and the Pacific, and Latin America. And a lot of our understanding of the failures of the system are shaped by and informed by their analysis, their experiences, and their visions as well. And I think, you know, as you said, the current system is failing people and planets. The majority of the world is experiencing hardships that are unjust and inequitable, right? And I think the pandemic really brought that to the surface. It was always there. But we've seen how even in this pandemic, where at the beginning, we were all really concerned about the economic impacts and, and, and how it may exacerbate existing inequities and injustices, we saw how in many ways those who hold wealth benefited from this experience, while the rest of the world was disadvantaged and made more vulnerable by it. And so our partners understand that the system is just simply not working. It's broken. But they also understand that the economic system is not separate from other systems that we engage with in the society. They understand that what we are dealing with are not simple technical challenges of the moment, but rooted, historical, complex, adaptive challenges, right, that we need to address. And, and, and these challenges are rooted in the ways in which capitalism, racism, or white supremacy, colonialism, and patriarchy have colluded and worked together historically and in this day to distribute risk, marginalization, and vulnerability inequitably around the world. And our experiences today of economic inequity, where some are lacking basic dignities and rights, basic access to food, basic you know, access to shelter, let alone an ability to self-actualize and live life under their terms, are rooted in these historical patterns that continue to distribute inequity. So I think our partners challenge us to think about what does it mean to engage with systems change and economic change that holds the work and the legacy of its root causes and works to undo them, unlock them, right? Unlock the harms that have taken place historically and continue to manifest themselves to this day. So when we talk about economic justice, the reason why we work at the intersection of food, climate, and economy is because they're deeply interconnected systems. We can't talk about the economy without talking about impacts on climate. We can't talk about climate without talking about food systems which contributes to over one third of greenhouse gas emissions. If I could summarize it shortly, it's an understanding that the system is rooted in historical patterns of extraction and exploitation, and that we have to advance strategies that are equally interconnected and complex to help us get out of this moment. There's a lot that I'd like to unpack in that, but one really important point you made early on, which I want to make sure our listeners have a chance to just understand more deeply from your perspective, is this point around adaptive challenges. We do have, I think, a, a trend towards technical solutions. 
I also sense that there's a, a growing recognition, at least in many of the networks that I run, and that those alone aren't going to get us where we need to go. Um, and so there's questions about how do we think about, like, how to adapt systems in a much more fundamental way. Can you talk about with, with the communities that you work with and from the perspective of Thousand Currents, when you say adaptive challenges, what do you have in mind in terms of what that means that's distinct from how a lot of people are thinking about technical solutions today? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when people think about technical solutions, we can even take climate as an example, right? There's a growing interest in identifying markets-based solutions, right? Carbon offsets or other technologies that will allow us to keep carbon in the ground because the recognition and understanding is that the climate crisis is an issue around carbon mitigation, right? And that's a singular technical understanding of that problem, but our partners would say that's actually not the challenge we face, that the climate crisis is a planetary crisis, but it's also equally a social, economic, and political crisis. And if that's the case, it's a complex challenge that requires us to think about how the different dimensions of solutions we advance would affect other areas, right, or be affected by them. Um, so when you advance a solution, for example, that's solely focused on planting trees, right? Let's plant trees. It doesn't matter who plants it, where the trees are planted, and what kind of biodiversity they advance, then you're advancing a very technical solution that doesn't take into account soil health, that doesn't take into account community impact and ownership. And so I think our partners would say an adaptive complex challenge allows us to think about the system as a whole and not in its fragment, which means that we have to reimagine a lot of our understandings of how change happens and who drives change. And an adaptive challenge, you do not have a single hero or a single leader who's going to deliver a change. It actually requires multiple actors and players in the ecosystem working together in coordinated action, even if they play different roles. And an adaptive challenge, we have to stretch our understandings of time, where particularly with an issue like climate, where we're operating from a place of justified urgency. And at the same time, we have a crisis that is decades, if not hundreds of years in the making. And so we have to think about what a multi-generational response looks like, right? So in an adaptive challenge, you're not going to deliver a solution in three to five years. It's going to take decades. And, and any significant social change that has taken place historically has taken decades everywhere in the world, right? So we have to stretch time. And, and I think our partners would also say in an adaptive complex challenge, we're not necessarily looking for a solution where we're looking shifts in the system and, and looking for a healthy system and assessing how are we building that healthy system and tending to it constantly. So it's not a destination but it's an ongoing process uh, that requires rooted analysis, reflection, and coordination and leadership. So I think those are some of the ways in which they would identify the different approaches to how change happens. It's incredibly helpful, and it sounds, uh, I think, both compelling but also hard. <laughs> the, uh, Very. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that I also um, that I struggle with as I think about just the urgency of the issues that the world is facing, whether it's economic injustice or, or what's happening with climate change, is this desire for quick action. I should also add there's growing cynicism that leaders are actually responding to these issues with the magnitude that they require. And so there's a desire for like, you know, quick moves and kind of, you know, quick progress. But also I, you know, intellectually understand that things take time and systemic change takes even longer and, you know, adaptive change. Um, and I always have a hard time figuring out how to hold those two things together <laughs> because this is a time when the world is in trouble. And, you know, how do we actually respond in a big, significant way with the patience for the change that requires us to think differently and, and behave very differently from our norms? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is our challenge. That is our work, right? And I think in many ways, what I'm observing is that is especially a challenge for those of us in the global north and those of us in the sectors that we occupy, whether it's philanthropy or the social sector, that are moved by a desire to act and to change um, and, and that have taken on this work in many ways as a profession, right? And as a career, whereas our personal lived lives may be different from it. We may hold different sorts of privileges and powers that are different from the issues that we address, right? And I think what I find interesting, and, and I've been in conversation lately with one of our partners in Chiapas, Mexico, who has been at the forefront of the solidarity economy movement, and one of the things that he, his name is um, Jorge Santiago and Maria Estela, who also works with them. One of the challenges they put forward to us is how do we, the importance of historical patience, right? Yes, we're in a moment of urgency, but place this urgency within the context of historical patience and let that drive our work. And then the other is the importance of shifts in the scope and scale of consciousness. That the kinds of challenges that we face today aren't just about issues that we need to solve and resolve. It's about how we change ourselves, our awareness and our consciousness so that we can relate to the problems we face. We can relate to each other. We can relate to our planet differently. And so if that's the case, then they remind us, you know, three decades is a breadth. <laughs> Think about three decades as a breadth, not as a long-term horizon. And it's hard, but I think it's been helpful to have that reminder, particularly from indigenous communities and black communities around the world who've faced historic and current exploitation and, and repression and oppression in different forms and who are saying we've been here for generations and we're going to be here for generations to come. And that change needs to have a multi-generational scope. And that's the only way. That's the only way we could actually restore this, the climate and planetary crisis we're experiencing now. Thank you for sharing that perspective. I think it's certainly very helpful to me. And I imagine many of our listeners are struggling with the same type of like tension and how do you hold these things at the same time? You know, I want to pivot to your vision of success. And what I mean by success is if we actually are able to make these adaptive changes and, and you know, drive systemic change in a way that better serves people on the planet. Can you paint the picture of you know, what the world looks like if Thousand Currents vision is realized? Yeah, what is it like to live in that world? Gosh, I can't wait to live in that world. <laughs> it is a world in which all people live with dignity and are able to have their basic rights, right? Are able to have basic securities in place. We know that in general, life is uncertain and insecure, even when we set up structures of security. But it's unjust that some have that in the form of, of a living wage, in the form of access to health and housing, and others don't. And so it's a world in which everyone has their basic needs met. It's a world in which people are able to self-determine. Because part of the challenges that communities are facing right now, particularly in the global south, is the collusion of state and corporate power that has completely disenfranchised them from their access to an ownership of land, their access to an ownership of food systems from production to distribution, and their access to and just ownership of their ability to self-actualize their communities, structures, governors, and systems in the ways that they see best. So I think in this vision of the world, it's a world in which people have greater 
power around agency and self-determination. It's a world that is truly democratic, right? So it's a world in which food systems production and ownership is democratic. It's a world in which we've transitioned fully from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but that renewable energy is not replicating the same old capitalist system of ownership. It's a world in which even that is governed through various decentralized community-led structures. And so it's a world in which power has been dispersed and decentralized and shared as opposed to centralized through a few mega corporations or, or state power. And it's a world in which, in which we've restored our relationship, right? Where we're not in the state of urgency and crisis because we've been able to transition industries. We've been able to build more pluralistic and democratic systems, societies and communities in a world in which power is shared. Well, it does sound very compelling. And so you can see why you want to live in that world. And one thing I wanted to ask you to expand on is that, you know, we, we hear a lot of talking has been for quite some time about increasing access. I have heard a lot more recognition around this point of ownership. I mean, I think it does connect to power and to kind of sovereignty. And can you talk a little bit about the, the importance of ownership and what you have in mind when you talk about decentralized structures and more kind of community participation in ownership? If we take green energy or renewable energy, for example, in that context, right now, there are large size corporations and industries that are providing renewable energy. And in this world, it would mean communities are able to control and own the provision of that service under their terms, right? So it is around the role that they play, not just as recipients of services, but also co-owners of those services. And I think that kind of structure can take shape in many different forms, right? It looks like worker-owned cooperatives in some areas. It can look like some of what people are imagining around the care economy. It can look like the community gardens and, and, and agroecological gardens and farms that people are building towards. It can look like community-owned land trust. I think there's many ways in which we can think about how, how that power is decentralized and how ownership pivots from a few to a collective. You know, with this vision in mind, I want to spend some time talking about what it would take to get from where we are today to realizing that world that you've envisioned. Can you talk a little bit about what types of steps you think need to be taken, whether they're local or global? I think the first step is centering and resourcing communities, frontline communities who are most impacted by these systemic inequities and injustices, right? They're not only facing the impact of the climate crisis or economic policies or authoritarianisms, whatever systemic challenge in their societies, they're also being shut out of access to resources to be able to push the kinds of changes that they want to change. And for us, particularly at Thousand Currents as a philanthropic organization and intermediary, one way we see our, the value of our work as moving resources to the front lines of change to be able to create an enabling environment in which communities can advance their visions, right? Because we actually don't have all the answers we need, but we need to create a space in which experimentations can be advanced, right? And so it's to be able to create that enabling environment by ensuring frontline communities have a seat at the decision-making table, have a seat at the policy tables and, and have the kinds of resources they need to be able to not just challenge what is harmful about the current system, but more importantly, build the alternatives that we all transition to. You know, I, I think that point is really powerful around this idea of like creating an enabling environment. 
A mentor of mine had once said that we haven't really gotten good at figuring out how to help the bottoms-up approaches add up to systemic change. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that that enabling environment. And I think this openness to you know the fact that we don't have all the solutions, but we need to create the space for them to be developed and surfaced and ultimately scaled. Yeah. Can I do that with an example? Because I feel like it's always sure. helpful to have a concrete example. Yeah. We had a, we have, we still have a partnership with a group in Guatemala called AFETIS, and it's an indigenous women's rights organization. And when we started working with them early in the 2000s, they had a really successful microfinance program that had 100% repayment rates, income was increasing in the community, participation was growing, and they were receiving the type of global recognition that many who do that type of work dream of from the Ministry of Economy at Guatemala to global financial institutions. Then in 2005 or so, they wrote to us to say they were stopping that program with no warning. And we were one of their few funders and we were surprised and we said, why? And they said, well, we've been doing some internal reflection and we're seeing the unintended harm of our work. So domestic violence has been growing in the community. We're seeing increasing land erosion because we're taking out fertilizers and pesticides to increase Production, we're seeing uh, migration out of indigenous youth that are leaving the community for better opportunities in urban areas that they actually are not finding that remain elusive and so on. And we just need to pause and figure out what we're doing. We'll get back to you in a year or two. We don't know what we're doing. And that was a really critical moment because all of their funders left and we stayed with them. And they came back to us within two years or so, or a year later, and said, we've completely reconfigured. Our work is not to just provide economic empowerment for Indigenous peoples. It's to to reclaim Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous rights as driven by Indigenous women feminists. That means engaging in political education and analysis. That means returning to ancestral practices that allow us to feed ourselves with dignity, sell at at a fair rate in the market, and, and restore our relationship to the earth. So agroecology as a practice It means reclaiming some of our indigenous technologies that are being appropriated. And at that time, big multinational corporations were using their indigenous textiles from that region and earning ridiculous amounts of money with no compensation to the indigenous communities from which the design emerged. So anyways, they took on this new line of work. And today they are leading not only a national movement of indigenous women, but also a regional movement of indigenous women that are forcing governments to think about and reimagine what collective intellectual property looks like. So the Afedas women took a case to the Guatemalan constitution to say they have to protect that indigenous designs are part of the indigenous collective intellectual property and that it must be protected. And they want that case in the Supreme Court now that Congress has to turn it into law. And it's a precedent-setting case globally for indigenous communities. And they've completely restructured their work to be more rooted and climate-friendly and agricultural practices and business practices. And I give this example to say, creating an enabling environment, particularly coming from the funder side or the investor side, really requires trusting in those who are doing the work, trusting in communities fully. Creating an enabling requirement means giving the support even when we don't know the outcomes, because we want outcomes. We want to know the answer before we even do the work. But the kinds of changes and shifts that we need in our work actually can't have predetermined outcomes. And that's what an adaptive complex challenge is, because there are so many entry points to the challenge, as well as so many entry points into how you move systems. 
If we try to predetermine it, then we're not creating an enabling environment. We're creating an environment in which that that is predetermined, that that advances our agendas and where we could or not succeed in the short term. But in the long term, we're not actually making the progress towards systemic shifts. So I think part of creating an enabling environment, particularly when it comes to international giving, where 99% of funding is still restricted, it really means unlocking capital in ways that allows communities to innovate, to experiment, and to adapt, and doesn't tie them up to our expectations of the security of answers. Well, well thank you for sharing that. And, and there's so much to glean from it. I think this point that you landed on is, is really important, because I think one of the things we're experiencing on a global basis right now with the war in Ukraine is how we've developed a lot of systems, whether they're you know, supply chains, food systems, and others that are kind of optimized around efficiency um, and the quickest way to get from A to B without any kind of room to maneuver. And so we're now having a global adaptive challenge. Same thing with our energy systems. How do we adapt to disruptions in the system? And one of the things I'm hearing from you is, you know, creating the space for creativity and also for resilience. In addition to, you know, innovation and other things of like, how do you actually create the room for people to adapt and evolve in ways where the, the solutions may not be evident at the beginning of that evolution, but certainly are ultimately you know, driving towards that outcome that you're interested in as a funder. And I'm, I'm hoping that this time, you know, whether it's the impact of COVID or the, the war in Ukraine and what that's doing globally, will lead to a recognition of how do we actually create more space for experimentation and adaptation, um, and also just more flexibility in our systems to adapt and evolve. Absolutely, absolutely. And how do we shift ideas of outcomes from results to processes, right? And how do we see adaptation and resiliency as actually a significant marker of outcome and progress? Can you talk about that point a little bit more around process and how that, that is one of the goals and not just kind of the, the end results? For us at Thousand Currents, in all our lines of work, we try to think about how the changes we seek are not the world that we envision, right? The one we just talked about earlier, but it's also they live in how we get there. And the how is where the process lives, right? And so how we get there matters in every aspect of our work, from how we're structured as an organization, what kind of leadership is exercised within an organization. If we're asking for dispersion of power externally, how are we dispersing power internally as an organization? And what kind of processes do we have in place for us to think about how we mitigate against our own power as a donor in relationship to our grantee partners? And so what that means for us as a process, for example, is we don't have a proposal form that we ask partners to complete with predetermined questions that you often guide how people think about and frame their work. We ask them to send us what they have, right? What are their visions? What are their strategic plans? What are their ideas? We don't have predetermined reporting forms that we ask, again, with our own questions that filter what they provide to us to meet what they think we want to know. We have one question, which is, what do you want us to know about your work? And when we switched, that was not always the practice. We switched to that about two or three years ago. And what we saw is we actually create a space and a process that allows people to think more holistically as a whole, as opposed to the fragments in which we engage with them, because we're thinking about this solution and this product. So that's all we're engaging with you. When you create a space for them to show up as a whole, you learn a lot more. We're learning a lot more about the organizations and their work now than we ever did before when we had project-based approaches. And so I think the processes are important in terms of not just what 
we expect from the change, but also how people advance those changes and how they're able to self-determine the process of getting to those changes and how they're allowed space to not just succeed. Because when we think about products and results, we're thinking about success, right? But they're also allowed to fail because there's no way we're going to resolve these systemic challenges without some of us failing, right? Some of the ideas working. I mean, if we look at private sector, venture capital, 10 to 15% success rate or what have you, right? And, and, and we need that kind of flexibility in our sector. And to be able to have that, we need to see the process of both win and loss as part of the results that we seek, as part of the work that get us to where we want to be ultimately. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about scale? I mean, one of the things that's so powerful about your work is that it is so local I and mean, it's so community-driven. We're also talking about issues that are global in nature, that transcend national boundaries, certainly community boundaries, and you know that require kind of that adaptive change on kind of an international level. How do you start to wrestle with those issues about doing this work at scale, and, and how do you think about how we could do that better as a society? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, the example I gave earlier with the Fed is, I think that's one interesting idea of scale, right? They were operating locally initially. They pivoted their structure, their vision, and their strategies, and now they're operating nationally and regionally at a different level of scale. And so I think one thing to address, and maybe perhaps one misconception that exists, is that local solutions can't scale, right? And in and, and the case that we're making is, Absolutely. I think frontline solutions, local solutions can deliver systemic change and they've done so. And part of how they do so and and what we constantly see from our work is when we support frontline communities, we're supporting frontline communities organized as movements and movements operate in a collective, right? Even if they're part of a local community or a national infrastructure they're often connected to each other locally, transnationally, globally. And because they are, they actually offer us a really interesting model of decentralized scale. And, and they help us to reimagine scale, not as a singular or vertical entity that's spreading itself in, in scope and reach, but rather as nodes and hubs of decentralized entities working together, advancing pluralistic, localized strategies and solutions with a global vision for where we're headed. And so, so part of, I think, what these complex times call us to rethink is the rethink our ideas and attachments to scale as size and as reach and, and think about how sometimes scale can be depth, sometimes going really deep and intricately addressing all the challenges of community is a model of scale. Sometimes scale is size, right? Sometimes it's spread for sure. And other times scale is influence, the scale is coordination. And that's what's supporting and working with communities who are organized as, as movements allows us to do. It allows us to really reimagine the scale that is needed to be able to advance the changes that we need. One of our partners is La Via Campesina, which is a global network of peasant farmers. They are in over 100 or so countries, over 200 million farmers, and they are LVC members at local levels, at national levels, regional levels, and then the global level. And they have diverse strategies that they're advancing towards food sovereignty, but a shared vision for that, what that can look like and what that can influence in a global scale. And I think that's where, to me, that's where a lot of significant portion of my hope lives. So my hope lives in how, how we reimagine and how movements help us reimagine scale and impact so that when we do reimagine it, we're also dispersing power and, and enabling change that, that, that is more contextualized. 
One other thing that I want to talk to you about before we move on to our lightning round and have to bring this conversation to a close, um, I think the way you've talked about rethinking kind of scale is incredibly powerful and also the way you're thinking about actually reimagining what local means because these, you know, speaking about networks resonates very well with me. And what I hear from you talking about these hubs and nodes uh, with the global vision, I think certainly the, the type of thing that we need you know, to address systemic issues. One of the things that we started with from your personal story um, is around narratives. And I think there's a lot of discussion now, I think, in, in people who are thinking about systemic change or a narrative change. I think we are still working out how to do that really well. But I, I want to talk a little bit about how you see narrative change playing a role, because um, the, the communities that you work with, I imagine, all have narratives written about them you know, in their local countries, but also internationally. And I see your work very much as redefining the narratives about them you know, as centers of, um, you know, not of just receiving services or kind of getting access to things provided by others, but also those who are generating insights, innovation, creativity, new solutions and ideas. We have a lot of points around that I think are very important around, you know, kind of creating ownership and self-determination, which is a very different perception from, I think, how popular media might, might paint a lot of those communities. And so um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of that in your work and how that factors into how Thousand Currents approaches its strategy? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's central and we're also figuring it out. How do we as a foundation do narratives work well? It's actually part of one of the pillars of our new strategic direction that we're launching in June, but it has always been central to what we do. The reason why Thousand Currents was started in 1985 was because our founders saw at that time a great move towards the World Bank, IMF, Bretton Woods Institutions-led type of exported development and said, wait a minute, why, why aren't we supporting communities directly? Why are they not drivers of change, right? So I feel like Thousand Currents is an organization structurally, but and pragmatically, and as a story, is a narrative change, right? It's to change how we relate to development, how we relate to philanthropy, and to weave new stories. And that remains a core part of our work. We don't just move money to movements. We have really robust donor education and influence and knowledge production programs to influence the narratives around how we understand local organizations, how we understand grassroots groups and movements, how we understand change and change making, who we think are the protagonists of systemic change. All of that is central to why we do what we do, how we do it, and what we do as an organization. We haven't necessarily, from my perspective, landed on a narrative strategy where I feel like, yes, this, this is the storytelling. We're experimenting with different forms of storytelling, cultural production, with the work itself, and so forth. But, but we cannot do this work without understanding the important role that the story plays, particularly when we're talking about the global South and, and when we're talking about communities. And I think the one thing we know to be true is that change is inevitable. Things will change because we're getting to that breaking point globally. And we also know that the type of changes we need in society aren't going to be decided by policymakers. It's not going to be decided in a small room in D.C. Even if the law passes and the policy passes, we need people. We need people to build the political will, people to build the economic will, and people to build the cultural will. And what often builds that, in addition to organizing, in addition to building out the alternatives, are the stories we tell, right? And, and, and the stories we tell to ourselves and the stories we tell to each other. And, and that is a significant arm of supporting the kinds of changes that we need moving forward. That's incredibly powerful. And I think this point of like who gets to write your story, I think is also so important to, the, um, to what I'm hearing from you. 
We've covered a lot of ground. And before we bring it to a close, I'd want to follow our tradition of a lightning round and get some recommendations because I imagine many of our listeners uh, will be inspired and stimulated by what you've you've shared. Um, so I have three questions uh, to run by you. And you know, the first is, as you think about the future of our economic system, what leader do you look to for inspiration? Um, in the spirit of what we've talked about, I look for leadership as opposed to leader because we need multiple leaders. And I'm looking for leadership of movements that are trying to reimagine what a more just economic system looks like. Those behind solidarity economies for a frame as well, as an example, or those behind regenerative economies. I'm excited about what will come and emerge out of that and the people that are involved in the strategic dreaming, thinking, and visioning around it. Great. What is a book that you'd recommend on these topics? It's right in time. I'm actually reading this book by one of our partners, the person I told you about, Jorge Santiago. It's called Political Solidarity Economy. He's been doing solidarity economy work for over four decades. So it's at the forefront of conversations and discourse around it. And it was written in Spanish. We finally were able to translate it into English this year. And I would recommend that because it allows us to decenter Global North knowledge production and think about and hear from those in the Global South, those at the forefront of the work around their theories and thinking about how we build an economic system that's just for all. Great. And if you could recommend that we interview someone else on this topic, who would come to mind? Well, Jorge Santiago, if you can yes. get an entrepreneur. Amaka <laughs> um, Agbo, who's doing some really great work around new economy, regenerative economies in the United States would also be really great. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, Salome, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think we, it was such a rich discussion. We covered so much ground, but a couple themes that I really drew from it. I think one that really struck me, of course, is this, like, how to pair the sense of urgency and conviction um, with ambition around systemic change, but placing that in patience uh, and thinking about the shifts in consciousness that are required to drive that type of systemic change. I think the emphasis on the how we get there is so key um, and what it means in terms of who has voice in the process, who's engaged, who gets to write their own narrative, um, and who has power and influence over setting their own future. You know, another thing that really resonates with so many things that we've talked about and with other guests is around the interdependency of issues, you know, understanding the recognition of things like food and climate and economic issues, but also how that even relates to political process and who gets a voice. Um, there's so much more uh, that I could summarize, but I, I do really hope that people will take you up on your recommendations. Certainly we will as well, but I do want to close just by saying thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Amit. This was really great. Thank you for creating space to have these conversations. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you. I'm joined now by Dean Hand, our Chief Research Officer at the GIN, to discuss Salome's thoughts on how we drive economic systems change. Dean, welcome. Thank you, Amit. It's lovely to talk about this. I, I want to just start off by saying, wow, what a conversation. As a daughter of the Global South, so much of what Salome had said just resonated with me really, really strongly. And I also recognize many of the organizations that they support and know them personally and just feel really strongly about the bottoms-up approach that they have tested and tried and really evolved. I think there are a couple of thoughts that I'd be just really interested in your thinking on them. One was really about how we enable experiments and an enabling environment that actually allows for investors in particular to actually test out certain things. Now, most investors are often concerned about 
they don't necessarily have the financial capacity to do that because they want to have the financial return. But how do we take some of those lessons about creating an enabling environment for investors to experiment with investing in systems that actually change at a grassroots level? It's a big question. And first, let me just say that I was also so grateful for Salome's remarks. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about this discussion about systems change is that you know, when we're talking about systems, we're talking about these huge kind of global overarching things like climate change or capital markets and beyond. And one thing that was so interesting was to talk about it from the community level up and how communities are, you know, have the potential of really demonstrating new models of working and how that then informs how we think about our broader systems. I think this point you raise about the need for more experimentation is a really important one. I think one of the things that I really recognize when you think about a future economic system that works for all people and all the planet, it's quite safe to say that we don't have all the models today that we'll need then. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting, uh, and I know we have um, a lot of members at the gin who are thinking about this, is you know how do you create the capacity to actually drive innovation when it comes to business models, you know, ways of engaging different stakeholders and beyond. I do think it's hard to map that into the broader mainstream, but a lot of investors do have some capability to start exploring those within their portfolios. But I do think it needs to be held as an upfront objective and something that you intentionally seek out because otherwise I think the strong incentives and the pull of the status quo will pull us towards models that we know well, that served us well in the past, but may not be what we need to develop for the future. And maybe it comes through some of the product um, development that they might think about and really not reverting back to the mainstream tried and tested ways of doing things just because that's how they've always done them, but rather in terms of thinking about different ways of actually servicing opportunities at a really basic level if they think about different products and different solutions. The one comment that Salome made that really blew my mind was this idea of focusing on the how we get there, the process, as opposed to just the results. Now, at the gym, often we're focused very much on the results. And I often have caught myself thinking that I'm less concerned about the process and much more concerned about the results. So talk to me a little bit about that, because the, she really eloquently introduce this idea of actually the way in which you get there is just as important as the results. I really like that as well. And I will acknowledge that it's very understandable to really be focused on the results. Because when you think about the issues that motivate impact investors, you know, we're worried about climate change, you know, economic inequities, uh, you know, and, and those can have a huge profound impact on people's lives. So there's a desire for speed. Um, and how do we get to the results? And what's the fastest way we get to solutions? I think one of the things that, as you point out, is really important to think about is like, what's the means of getting to those ends? You know, how do we achieve those results? And actually even thinking about the how as a result in itself. And that is one thing that we do a lot at the gin when we think about developing new research approaches or developing kind of new themes in RS Plus or kind of new ways of helping to guide the market that we do engage a lot of investors along and other stakeholders in that process. And that actually gives you a better result. And also you get a group of people going through an experience together, which in itself is a great outcome. But I, I think that emphasis on process is really important um, in, in the journey itself. And it's something that I, th I hope our listeners all take away and have some space to reflect on. How can we think about different ways of getting to those results? Um, and in some cases, it may make them more durable, which I think is the case in what Salome was saying. 
And the example that she used about what they learned from a particular investor or investee that came back to them to say that something wasn't working and how they actually played with that idea and gave them the space to be able to actually change their whole approach completely is is that if they were so result-orientated, they would have lost that whole process in the execution of their work. One last comment I'd like to hear from you a little bit more is this idea of scale. The fact that we often think of scale as in size, as in volume, and not necessarily in terms of how effective or the depth. Another word that she used was the ability to influence. And at the gin, we spent a lot of time actually talking about the effectiveness of impact investing rather than just the amount of money that's actually going towards impact investing. Thoughts and reflections from you in respect of that idea? Well, I, I think it really speaks to some of the tensions that we talked about with Salome around this idea of, you know, we, we do th- need things to be systemic in nature, right? If we're going to address you know, climate mitigation, adaptation, resilience, we need to do that worldwide. And so that scale part matters. And, and what we can see now is that we don't have enough kind of scale in terms of volume or breadth, depending on how you want to think about it. But also this point around depth, I think, is really powerful. Uh, and I think it's really important. Um, the other thing she also spoke about was time and the need to think across longer periods of time, which certainly is the case of a lot of like you know indigenous communities who think at an intergenerational dimension when they think about you know, change that they seek. But that's another thing that has pressure on it because we also want, we not only want scale, but we want speed. And so I think her comments were really good counterbalances to those elements of thinking about the depth on the local level uh, and also the need to take a lot of time to drive you know, really durable, significant change. And then just to end off, and your comments so beautifully speak to the beginning of her discussion with you, and that really was around this idea that if we're serious about systemic change, we need to understand that it takes decades for it to instantiate and see the the fruits of that work. So Amit, it was just an inspiration for me to listen to the discussion, and I love hearing your comments afterwards, so thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to this podcast and share your thoughts about Salome's vision for our next normal on social media. Our next normal community knows that money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, we're aiming to show the world just how we do so. Until next time, take care.